Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Do you want to come and play our quiz? Can you get to number 10? 10 questions loosely connect 10 cabinet jobs. The more questions you get right, the, more, the better the job you get to taking your place alongside our listeners and guests. And if you get all 10 right, then you become a Prime Minister. Easy peasy. If you want to come on, email me, matt.chorley at times.radio with your name and your number. And we'll get you on the radio very soon. Right, coming up on the podcast today, really interesting discussion this. Is the era of cheap over? Whether it's uh, going out, eating out, buying stuff in the shops. Have we got to get used to paying more for it? In part because of the pandemic, Brexit and uh, controls on immigration. Uh, really interesting conversation coming up on that. Is the cost of living about to get more expensive? Uh, before that, though, it's our economist panel. No Danny Finkelstein today. So David Ivanovich is joined by Rachel Cunliffe. Big question of the day, what's the point of manifestos? Do they matter? Ken Clark was saying at the weekend uh, that nobody's ever read a manifesto. It's never made any difference how anyone's voted. But does it matter if the Conservatives promise not to put up a tax and now they uh, are going to break that promise? Does it matter, David? Well, not really. No, I mean, the, the, the thing about manifestos is the kind of idea which is suggested afterwards that they represent a kind of biblical um, uh, entity, which must be, if you're going to be faithful to your to, to your particular religion, you have to stick to, otherwise you're a backslider and a heretic. They constitute in some way a contract with the electorate, which the majority of the electors, who of course have never voted for your party in the first place, by the way, this is just a kind of fiction which we maintain, but nevertheless, um, which they have signed with you and that you must stick and you're in breach of contract if you don't go for it. It's fairly obvious to any sentient adult that circumstances change and that some promises are more rubbish than others. In general, people vote for parties, do, do they not, on a whole series of uh, attitudinal grounds. They think they're broadly either the right people to do take us forward, or at least they're not as bad as the wronger people to take us forward, who, by, since by voting for them, you keep those out. And the whole notion that you stick to a manifesto commitment um, because it is that kind of contract is fictional. And quite, you know, as you, as you quite rightly say, or as you quite rightly quote, most people don't read manifestos anyway and don't know what's in them. So when people say, oh, you're departing from your manifesto, they don't really mean that. They mean something else. Tories mean we don't like tax rises very much, so we're going to pretend it's all about the manifesto, but actually we don't like the policy. 
And it's interesting that some of the Conservatives who were so cross about the idea of breaking the manifesto were, were, were less keen about adhering to the manifesto when, because uh, of course their manifesto also said, we'll proudly maintain our commitment to spend 0.7% of GNI on, on foreign aid. Uh, and uh, the people who are now most cross about the idea of breaking it to put up a tax are actually quite enthusiastic about um, uh, cutting foreign aid. Uh, Rachel, what, what do you think about the, the value of manifesto? Well, it's amnesia, isn't it? The the foreign aid cuts versus the the tax rises here. Although I have to say, I ha- I actually do read manifestos. My favourite one ever is the um, Monster Raving Looney Party manifesto in two thousand and ten, I think, uh, who had introducing a ninety nine p coin and banning wire coat hangers, both of which <laughs> I could totally get behind they get tangled up in your cupboard and they rip your clothes and yeah, totally on board the, with that. The leader of the Monster Raving Looney Party lives near me. Well, what does that say about you? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Alan, <laughs> Alan Lord Hope. Wait, I can't remember his name. Alan, was it? Wait, you know, Alan Looney Lord Hope or something. Yeah, he's he's always in our local weather springs. But, but back back to reality, <laughs> I think the real problem, and I just do understand that circumstances change. 18 months have obviously not gone the way that voters or politicians planned uh, and that therefore tweaking your manifesto commitments is, is absolutely sensible. Um, the issue with this particular plan is that we're talking about whether it's a, a manifesto breach or not, rather than how justifiable and and how much sense does it make on its own merits and what it basically is is let's increase the tax on working people specifically working people because national insurance isn't paid by those who are retired so let's increase the tax on working people in order to protect the property wealth and the inheritances of those who need social care and their children who want to look forward to a nice big inheritance without having it without having it chopped away in order to pay for their parents' social care. So it's basically, let's tax everyone in order to protect the wealth, protect the wealth of a few at the top. I don't really care whether that's a, a manifesto commitment or not. I think it's unjustifiable on its own terms. Uh, and that's what I think the, the MPs arguing against it should be focusing on. And it was interesting, um, that we were talking about this uh, earlier on with uh, Francis Elliott and Chris Curtis, but the the fact that Conservatives breaking it to put up a tax, because it goes against the sort of brand, they will get some credit for taking tough decisions in a way that if the Labour Party did it, um, David, it would be the obvious, yeah, oh, the Labour always putting up taxes as uh, the only idea they've got, even though it's basically the same the same idea, but it's, you know, it, it sort of brand and values uh, yeah, yeah. comes into it. Well, well, on the basis that, of course, the Tories are relaxant, reluctant tax putter. On the same basis, you would imagine that Labour will be enabled to make swinging cuts to the NHS because they're always seen as being pro-NHS. I'm totally sure it works like that. Um, uh, the the problem, I mean, without getting into the kind of weeds of which bit of the electorate gets taxed and so on, I mean, the government is uh, obviously trying to sell this as being, in the first instance, a tax for the NHS immediately after the pandemic, in other words, something that couldn't possibly have been foreseen. But actually, in that manifesto sits the twin commitments to a major change of social care and not to do anything with taxes. These were never compatible. Uh, Whatever combination of things you use in order to fund this, and I completely dispute the notion, by the way, that Rachel seems to put forward there, that the only people who would benefit from this are wealthy people who would otherwise see their uh, money drawn down. Really, honestly, 
that's not quite that's not quite what it is but you can certainly argue about the combination of taxes you use and the impact that they would have on the various people i mean i would like to see a much more significant an increase in inheritance tax i think that's absolutely logical if you know how much it would raise is, a, is another matter and i would like to see other forms i probably would like to see an increase in the uh, main rate of in- income tax and maybe of the top rate as well in order to help fund these things all those things seem to me to be fair but let's not make this another kind of generational redistribution uh, problem because in time everybody who's paying tax now will actually be stand to either benefit or lose from uh, a social care system is either improved or has continued to degenerate but so the point the point is that it, because at the moment poor people who don't have loads of savings uh don't breach the current threshold um uh they they therefore get the state help so what you're actually doing is helping the people who do have savings uh and therefore have to work the way so the the main beneficiaries of this um plan both now and in the future will be those slightly better off people i suppose that's the yeah but slightly but slightly but slightly slightly better off is not kind of you know the sort of millionaire oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so and i think i think it's important to understand that possibly respond to that i'm not saying that it's only the very wealthy who will benefit but it is only people who have assets and it will be paid for by all working people you start paying national insurance you can be earning as little as seven thousand pounds a year that's less than the state pension age and you are still paying national insurance so we're talking about the poorest in society who don't have any assets who don't have any savings who don't have property wealth maybe who are raising children in rental accommodation paying in order to protect the wealth and the property and the inheritances of everyone, big or small, who has been able to build up assets. And that includes the fifth, the one fifth of pensioner households who have assets worth over one million. Now that's not saying all pensioner households are wealthy, but a significant proportion are, a higher proportion than any other demographic group who have those assets. And you are talking about taxing everyone, including the poorest, to subsidise everyone above a certain level, including the wealthiest. And that's why it's regressive. Well, we'll see exactly how it's all how it all pans out when Boris Johnson uh, makes his announcement uh, later on. Let's turn our attention to another uh, long-standing promise from this uh, government uh, to do something. Is it some- war with France? Is it war with France? Exactly right. Uh, that- <laughs> it's a long-standing <laughs> promise of all governments, uh, British governments, to uh, be at war with France. Um, uh, Priti Patel has promised many times to get tough on uh, refugees and migrants trying to cross the channel in small boats. Uh, she's threatened to put them on ferries. She's threatened to put them on oil rigs. She's threatened to put them on the Ascension Islands. She's told off TikTok. She's told off Facebook. Uh, she's She's told off the French government and uh, none of it seems to be working. And now uh, she's uh, having basically uh, tried to bribe the French by giving them money to, to police uh, the waters to stop people reaching the UK. She's now threatening to take that money away again. Um, uh, <laughs> it's one of those things that clearly something ought to be done. And maybe, but maybe there isn't an answer to this. Or maybe of all the people who was going to come up with an answer to this, it's not going to be pretty Patel, Rachel. I love the fact that the, this this strategy seems to be outsourced border security to the French. We can't be bothered to to do our own uh, border border policing. So let's get the French to do it for us, and let's pay them. I think fifty four million pounds, but they they won't use the planes that we want them to use because the planes can't fly at night. They won't use the drones that we sent them because they breach 
French privacy laws. They're not doing what we tell them to do. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we can't really do anything about it or Priti Bissell can't do much about it because they're not employed by her. They're employed by the French government, which just, I, I am not a border policing expert, but I just wonder who had the bright idea to let's outsource, outsource this to the French. If you're gonna spend 54 million on it, and, and there's a separate question about whether you should be putting money into enforcement or whether you should be putting money into uh, enabling more safe legal routes for people, desperate people to reach this country. But if you are going to put that money into policing, why not get the British to do it? Am I missing something? <laughs> well, no, I'm not sure you necessarily are. David, on the, on the sort of the, the substantive point, offer your, I know you're always uh, on the phone chatting to her anyway, offer your advice to Pretty Patel as to what she should do about this this issue. Yeah, firstly, instead of building it up as a huge problem, build it down as a huge problem and point out that the vast majority of asylum seekers uh, don't come here by boat. Uh, they probably come by aeroplane, that we don't take a very many asylum seekers anyway, uh, 25,000 a year compared with 112,000 in Germany. So it's not a huge problem from that point of view, that we are seeking to cut the people coming over the channel because it's dangerous for them and interdict people smugglers because it's bad for them. And to do that, we're going to make it slightly easier for people to come to this country because then they'll lean on the people smugglers less. Speak nicely to the French because this is, guess what, an interdependent world where what happens on the borders concerns both sides, not just one side. And finally, if you are going to depend a bit on the French to do something to try and solve your problem for you, probably the worst possible way you could do it is to threaten or to take away the money with which you were going to help them do the thing that you wanted to do to help you. Because it wasn't that um, long ago that she she gave it to, I'm not even sure if they've got the money yet. It was only a few weeks ago, I think they confirmed it. It was about like 54 million pounds. Can you, can you imagine being the person in the British embassy who has to deal with this kind of stuff when she sees the front page of the Times saying Pri Patel threats the French and they think, what is this woman actually on? I mean, in what universe is this going to help me deal with the French over the question of how to do, uh, uh, of how to do this? Oh, yep. Plays very well with, you know, certain sorts of voters that the Conservatives like to imagine, you know, the kind of, the, you know, whoever we imagine the Red Wall voters to be, this kind of fantasy group uh, and so on. Um, and plays particularly well with some Conservative MPs and with certain newspapers. But it doesn't work. I think I can answer the question as what Pretty Patel's on. I think it's got to be nitrous oxide, hasn't it, given that that's what she's just introduced uh, uh, an inquiry to look at whether we should ban the least harmful drug in existence. Uh, so clearly, clearly she's been focusing very hard on that. And I'd like to know what it was that drew her, drew her attention to that. Rachel, what's nitrous oxide like? You know what? I wouldn't know. Ask me about some other ones. Let's ask Matt. Matt knows. I don't know anything. No, it's the laughing gas one, isn't it? It's the one you get for those little the little silver bottles dotted around. Well, I don't care if they take them as long as they clear up those silver bubbles which well, get everywhere. There you go. That's why Pretty Patel is smiling all the time. Rachel Cunliffe and David Aronovich there. And of course, you can read David in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is the era of cheap over. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, is life about to get more expensive? Is the era of cheap 
over? That's a question we're going to discuss uh, for the next half an hour. The truth is that in recent years, we've got used to getting quite a lot for very little. Our supermarkets and sandwich shops are now full of food from all over the world. Maybe you're having an avocado for your lunch or a bit of sushi. It doesn't cost the earth to eat well these days. We've also got used to people coming to our doors with endless boxes full of the plastic bits and pieces that make life a bit easier. It's all thanks to supply chains becoming super efficient and production pitching itself perfectly to cater for desires we didn't even know we had. Life has become full of stuff and it doesn't cost nearly as much as our parents would have had to pay for it. But is that now all under threat? Mounting pressures are building from rising commodity and shipping costs to a shortage of 90,000 HGV drivers over the past 12 months. And without opening an old wound, there's Brexit-related red tape too. In a moment, we're going to hear from some of the businesses on the front line about why they think our prices are heading upwards. Uh, But first, uh, let's get uh, the picture from uh, the industry. Carl Monk is Head of Insights at the British Retail Consortium. Hi, Carl. Morning. What are your uh, members uh, telling you uh, in terms of uh, um, at what point do they have to start passing on the increased costs that they're facing? So it's, it's quite surprising that they haven't already, to be honest, because normally it takes about seven to 12 months for cost rises within the food supply chains to sort of trickle through into final food shop prices and around so 12 to 24 months for, for non-food items like fashion and electronics. But for all accounts, you know, looking at the CPI, so the government information or looking at our own measures, uh, you know, prices actually only re- you know, fell year on year uh, in August. So it's um, it hasn't happened yet. However, all the things you just mentioned, you know, you, there's there's there was already an HGV driver shortage, but that's doubled in the last uh, few months. There are, um, you know, over Christmas, that's going to sort of come to a head because it, in December, non-food sales values are about 70 percent higher. For food, they're about 30% higher, so there's a lot more volume going through the system, which will be difficult to, to manage with this shortage. Um, and, you know, and we are seeing sort of spot price rises. So, you know, I think everyone heard about the semiconductor shortage that happened earlier this year. That's begun to filter through as uh, sort of an increase in prices of some electricals. But uh, food prices are still deflationary, however, not, potentially not for much longer. And, and uh, when we... Do you think that there will be a permanent shift? Are all the things that we're talking about, whether it is Brexit, whether it is having to pay lorry drivers more, is this era that we've enjoyed of things actually being pretty cheap and convenient? Is that a, is is that going to become a thing of the past? You think? So, you hit the nail on the head by saying you know, England had some of the, the, the sort of most competitive and, and probably uh, best per capita prices for food in in Europe. Really, we had an, uh, we have had. Uh, you know, it's been, it's been a luxury that perhaps we've taken slightly for granted. Uh, and, you know, I think there will be an element of pricing in some of these these labour changes. So, you know, um, Brexit, COVID have, have resulted in, in quite significant demographic shifts in the UK. And it is a lot more difficult to get, uh, you know, sort of farm gate labour than it perhaps was previously. There, there are lots of things that make up price changes. So, you know, labour is one of them. Uh, inflation's a really big one. Uh, obviously, farm gate prices are another. So I guess that the question will be really whether we can plug some of these gaps. I mean, it's not just HGV drivers. Um, you know, there was a, a, a press release come out this morning about there's a hundred thousand fewer butchers that we need, meaning uh, sorry, not hundred thousand. Uh, there's a lot fewer butchers than we need currently, which means that a hundred thousand uh, you know carcasses might be destroyed. Oh yeah, month. I saw that story. This is this is pigs, isn't it? That there aren't enough people yeah. to, to carve up the uh, carcasses, so they might just all have uh, to be incinerated. And the world's sort of biggest 
barbecue. Uh, <laughs> but um, but but then presumably uh, farmers get less money for it because there's less money coming through. So that all has a you know a knock on effect on the industry. So what does this mean uh, for shoppers? Let's bring in Kate Hardcastle, retail analyst known as the customer whisperer. Kate, have we as shoppers? as people who go out and eat or buy uh, food in the supermarket or order things online, have we got to get used to the fact that things are going to be more expensive? And if we, is that, were we wrong to revel in the fact that people were being paid not very much money to do crappy jobs in the past? I think we have seen a tipping point, which is incredibly interesting, having watched consumers over recent years. Yes, absolutely. There'll always be the bargain hunters. There's always the people who love and celebrate value and perhaps don't want to think about the supply chain element. But I think as with a lot of things in business, COVID has been a great reawakener of the kind of questions we need to ask as consumers. What is the supply chain to my goods? Where are these items coming from? Who's involved in the provision of it? And what are they being paid? Or where is that material coming from? And I think whether it's ethical or environmental about wage elements or um, anything to do with the stakeholders involved with organisations, we are realising that as consumers, we have power. We have power in our purse. And combined, we can start to make change and differences. And we're seeing that a across the board. It doesn't matter whether it's retailers getting under pressure to actually come up with clear statements on their environmental issues or whether they're talking about their work within communities. These retailers are driven, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because they know if they don't actually get on top of that consumer zeitgeist, they might as well give up the fact that there's no point advertising or marketing their business. They have to actually start being authentic. And, and uh, is there a, a, uh, then a world where, because um, we've still got the same amount of money, and in fact, we'll, people will be paying more tax. So as a result, we become a bit more discerning and maybe we, we, we buy less stuff, but it's a bit nicer. Uh, whether whether, so. whether you know, nicer for us or nicer for the environment, nicer for the people who are producing it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or indeed, we don't buy at all. So again, in the last 18 months, when you look at the majority of research coming out, people talk about items like fashion, for instance. They've realised perhaps they don't need the amount of items that they've got hanging in wardrobe. Perhaps their life's going to be different because they're going to be dressing down for the office or whatever that reason is. We're seeing the recycle market start to come up. We're seeing more people using secondary markets. We're seeing people rent their fashions. And that goes on and on. People are trying to do the right thing be that their budget making as we used to say in Yorkshire you know buy cheap buy twice but that idea that when we're going to invest we're going to invest a bit more and make sure that it's come from a good place it will last longer but actually if we don't need to how can we find that product or service elsewhere without having to pay an extreme price for it I think this is a seismic shift in terms of consumerism and it's going to be really interesting how retailers actually start to adapt and evolve to suit it. Thanks very much. That's Kate Hardcastle there, the customer whisper. What does all this mean then for economics? The big picture, if prices start going up, that feeds into what we call inflation, and then that becomes uh, pressure for interest rates to rise. Here to explain all that, Frank Van Leuven, uh, for an, econ- uh, an economist at the New Economic Foundation. Hi, Frank. Hello, good afternoon, Tim. Uh, nice to have you with us. Uh, explain first of all uh, what we mean by when we talk about inflation, because there's a, there's this the O and S shopping basket. What actually goes into calculating the price, uh, the cost of living? So there's lots of different things that actually go into into calculating what what we refer to as inflation, which effectively means the the the, 
the rate of change in the price of goods and services. And that's what the consumer price index effectively changes. So, so it basically is measuring how much prices of goods and services are, are increasing over, the, over on a yearly rate or on a monthly rate effectively. And, and what we've seen is that the consumer price index more recently climbed to 2.1% in July. It's now hit uh, and it hit an all-time high of 2.5% in June. Um, and now, now there's forecasts that they could basically, that prices will increase by possibly 3% towards the end of the year. And this can hit households in the sense that it means that, that goods and services are become, become more costly. And when you go to the supermarket, it basically hits your, your purse. Uh, and then when, uh, I mean, interest rates at the moment are of historic lows. Um, what, the the, uh, the the target for the Bank of England is inflation of 2%. If inflation, driven by all the things we've just been discussing, does start creeping up to 3% or, or more, what would the response be from, from the Bank of England? So it's really important to, to say that in, in some ways the Bank of England is definitely driven by rules, but it also has discretionary decision-making power. And right now, my thinking and, and everything I've heard is that the Bank of England sees this inflation very much as transitory. That means that you ask these questions about whether this is going to be permanent or temporary, right, at the beginning of, of, of your conversations. And, and what the Bank of England is very much thinking is that, is that these are, tr- these are, are transient um, increases in inflation. And that basically comes down to, to some, some, some changes that we've seen post-COVID and because of Brexit. Yes, labor supply size shortages and, and global bottlenecks. But for all intents and purposes, there's also been a massive adjustment, right? People have, have spent last year, they've spent lots of money on goods, right? Um, and now they're going out and spending money on, on having fun, on going out to bars and, 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 and having drinks and so forth. So that's having a change. The other thing that happened last year, there's a second thing, was that prices went down in a lot of sectors. Um, so a natural thing is that this year, prices will, will start to come back up. And so there's this natural rebound in, in the pricing. And the third thing that, that possibly we should talk about is that there's been lots of pent-up demand um, over the COVID lockdown period. And so consumers, you know, you got out and how many people went shopping, right, or went to the high street and started spending. But now all retail services and, and, and retail sales data says that that demand is effectively decelerating. So for all intents and purposes, a lot of this, this inflation and increase in prices is, is, is thought to be um, temporary. Um, and the, the other important thing to say is we have a very nimble and flexible economy. We should have faith in it. It will adjust. Eventually, we will have more HGV drivers um, and possibly we'll have to pay them a bit more. But then the year after, that doesn't mean that prices will increase. And we have to have to pay them more or that there will be supply side bottlenecks in those features. So for all the, the data is still early, I should stress. Um, but there's nothing to, to suggest that, that inflation is accelerating and that's a permanent feature. So the Bank of England could potentially see this through and it should see this through effect for, for many reasons, because raising interest rates, which is what the Bank of England does to kind of slow down the increase in prices, would be quite catastrophic given that we haven't really you know gotten into an economic recovery just yet we have a lot of people coming out of the furlough scheme um universal credit there's the drop in the 20 pound feature to that possibly increases in 
in, in taxes and, and national um, insurance contributions. So my suggestion, and I think from all the conversations I've had with people at the Bank of England, is that they're still seeing this as a transitory feature and, and not to get too excited and, and, and thwart the <laughs> In the long term. Just finally, Frank, uh, Leo's been in touch asking, if wages continue to rise owing, owing to the reduction of cheap overseas labour and other factors, surely this increase in prices will be offset and people who used to be on low wages may have more purchasing power. Does it make a difference that one of the drivers of... Uh, the increase in prices is to pay people more, so therefore those people have more money in their pockets. Does there end up being an economic be- sort of uh, positive effect? No, that, that's a really great point, and, and also kind of, kind of I think you alluded to this earlier. We should be really clear that, that that yes, you know, prices in supermarkets, you know, over the last decade were low, but wages and the increase in wages were at you know all time low and hadn't been stagnant wages for a decade since the Napoleon Napoleonic Wars. Now. Um, the idea that if, if we start kind of increasing demand in the economy, you know, here domestically, then that can be possibly a good thing because then demand driven wages can, can basically not necessarily always be passed on to higher prices and tighter late labor markets can, can basically generate what's called nominal wage increases, which potentially show up as inflation, but also as faster real wage growth. So, yes, we want wages to increase, but we want them to increase faster than higher prices. And that's good for people. And, and yes, so in, in, some, in some ways, if we start paying people more, then they start spending more. And that gives businesses you know, more profit. They can then invest. And that, that, that will boost the supply of goods and services. And then you can have you know, some of the beneficial aspects to these types of di- uh, macroeconomic dynamics. Frank, thanks for answering that question so well. It was it was a good it was a good question, and I'm I'm now glad that I'm slightly clearer on the answer. Frank Van Leuven there, who's an economist. Why can't I say the word economist at the New Economic Foundation? Uh, we'll continue this conversation in a moment, taking a look at whether or not this era of cheap stuff uh, is over, or is it just a temporary blip? Now we're taking a look at whether or not the era of things being cheap is over. The combination of the pandemic, Brexit, a shortage of lorry drivers is gradually uh, nudging up the price of things. It's something we've discussed quite a lot here in recent weeks uh, here on uh, the show. Uh, a, a week or so ago, we spoke to the Iceland Managing Director, Richard Walker, and I asked him to explain what staffing issues the food industry, the supermarket industry, is facing. Well, uh, this is, as you said, has been a kind of issue that's been rumbling on for, for many months now. Um, and the, the warning bell has been sounded uh, for a long time by uh, manufacturers and suppliers and retailers. And um, there's a longer kind of systemic issue that the average age of a HGV driver is 57. Um, so it is a bit of a kind of dying um, industry workforce in, in that respect. We need to get like younger people into uh, the workforce. Um, and I think in totality, we've got about 100,000 um, short in this country. So it is a big amount um, that, that we're short. And Iceland um, ourselves, we're short by about 100 full-time HGV drivers. Um, and this is causing uh, problems throughout the uh, the, the food industry. There's obviously been, you know, the issues recently uh, with uh, Nando's and McDonald's. I heard you talk about pigs in blankets earlier, and it is affecting availability at shelf. Exactly right. I mean, longer term, you know, the solution, one of the benefits of Brexit, you might argue, is that, you know, we can um, backfill all of those vacancies with training up a UK domestic workforce. And with the wage inflation that's coming through the HGV driver industry, it's actually pretty good money. Um, 
but that'll take time. It'll take six months plus to uh, train these, this workforce, uh, get them their class one licenses. Between now and then we have Christmas, of course. And um, I think the, the only uh, short term solution is simply to add these HGV drivers onto the government skilled worker list um, where EU nationals can be exempt. That's Richard Walker, the Managing Director of Iceland, speaking to me last week. We've also recently spoken to Peter Kinsella, who manages the Lunya Deli and uh, restaurant in Liverpool. And he told me about how the pandemic had affected his staffing. We're one post down out of a workforce of close to 80 that we've really struggled to recruit, and that's a, it's a senior chef's post. Uh, but we always try and carry spare capacity uh, so we have our own internal relief workforce, really. So if we are down on a site, we can shift people about. But it's a huge issue. And we, we knew, we know, if, we, if we'd have been unlucky enough to have lost some, some of our staff over this last lockdown, we'd be in trouble trying to replace them because everyone is reporting uh, real difficulties, especially amongst, uh, amongst skilled chefs. There's a huge national shortage. And, and that, that's what's been reported. People have have found other employment over lockdowns and have decided that they can earn similar money without having to work weekends or their Saturday nights. And hospitality is a fantastic industry to work in. But the personal sacrifice everyone makes really is you don't have the weekends to yourself. And it's hard to have a great social life on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday night because <laughs> most of your mates are at school nights, they're working the next day. Yeah, now I remember from when I worked on a Sunday newspaper, trying to convince everyone that Monday was really a weekend was was, was a very right. hard sell. It's a very hard sell. The challenge for us, sorry, has been that, you know, doing new things to get people to stay. You know, we, we've had this uh, strategy now for the last six months and we will carry on till next year of getting all of our full-time staff working no more than 40 hours. And it used to be a 48-hour week for a full-timer and there's a financial cost because people's pay is staying the same and we're just gradually reducing hours to 40 to try and give people just you know a much better home life and our our sense is if people have a much better work-life balance they'll stay with you you know you've got to pay well as well but it's not just about the pay it's about everything else that goes with the job Uh, that was uh, Peter Kinsella Peter Kinsella who manages uh, Lunya in Liverpool Amazing. He's literally given them, a, 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 in effect, a pay rise, work, the same amount of money for uh, working fewer hours. Uh, let's now speak to Helen Stevenson, owner of Kettleston Country House. Hi, Helen. Hi, good morning. Uh, what is Kettleston Country House, first of all? What do you do? Um, we, oh, we're a bit servicing. Um, we're mainly a wedding venue, but we also act as a bed and breakfast, a restaurant and a bar. Um, so we do a, a wide selection of events and things like that. And what Peter was just describing there, it, does that ring yeah. bells with you in terms of oh. uh, finding staff, retaining staff? Massively, massively. I think furlough gave too much freedom. Um, when we returned at the end of May, I had three core staff hand their notices in straight away because they went off to start new businesses or they were getting um, better pay elsewhere. Um, it's yeah, staffing has been a real nightmare for us to the extent that we actually are now open only open four days a week because I haven't got the staff to to be open seven days a week. And is that then affect? I, I suppose do you get the same number of people coming to you on those four days? I mean, that's presumably you're, you're literally sort of locking the door on income. 
Yeah, absolutely. We're losing. Um, we're we're losing a lot of income, um, and it's 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 so destroying um, on a daily basis having to turn business away. But I just haven't got the the staff to be able to to fulfil the service um, uh, twelve hours a day. It's it's just not possible for us seven days a week. No, I have to say, uh, looking at your website, I'm not sure that you're necessarily on the cheap end. Uh, uh, anyway, you know, you're not, you're not you're not knocking it out cheap. But do you think there was a there was an issue of within the hospitality sector? Um, uh, people ha- it's not been the most well paid jobs in the past, and you, people can go and find more money elsewhere. Are you going to have to pay Absolutely. more people? Does that push up the um, price? I have had staff demanding pay rises, um, but we didn't pay peanuts anyway. Uh, our, our, our salaries were uh, are very competitive. Um, but when you can go to um, go further south and, and double um, your, your wage down there, it's it's hard. So chefs, um, we've rarely struggled with, with chefs that have relocated, that have, have uh, relocated um, down south because they they can double their their pay. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, yeah. I'm, our local pub has struggled to find a chef for the whole summer, and it's sort of very intermittent. Yeah. It's the way yeah. they're not there's. And, and just make the case if someone's thinking about why doesn't uh, make the case for going and working in hospitality because, um, you, you know, why are people leaving? Yeah, lots of other people love it. Well, going back to to like the weekends and and um, things like that, people, yeah, it is hard to balance a home and social life uh, with with working in the hospitality. Um, but for us, we're we're trying to make it as as fun and enjoyable and as flexible as possible. So, um, for example, if my staff are working on a Saturday, they don't don't then work on a Sunday. So then it does give them the family life and the social life that we are all all craving for. Um, but um, for us, the hospitality it's industry, it's so rewarding and hosting weddings and um, fulfilling celebrations. It's, it is. It's it's so a, so a nice thing to do. It's a nice thing to do. Helen, lovely to speak mm. to you. Helen Stevenson there from Kettleston Country House. But maybe all of the staff, all the chefs have gone off to retrain as uh, lorry drivers because you can become a millionaire being a lorry driver apparently these days. Uh, let's speak to Duncan Buchanan finally, policy director for the Road Haulage Association. Hi, Duncan. Uh, good morning. Um, is that what's happening? Is all this talk of how much you're going to earn being a lorry driver, people queuing up to be lorry drivers? Uh, well, there is certainly increases in wage rates for, for lorry drivers. Uh, some people are, uh, particularly from the retail markets, the supermarkets, they are uh, doing signing on bonuses and various things to, to, to backfill. You had uh, you quoted from Iceland earlier on. Uh, they have the margin to, uh, to to extend pay quite quickly whereas other smaller businesses don't quite have the same flexibility. So, yes, we're seeing increases in, in wage rates. We expect that to continue for the foreseeable future. Um, and what I found interesting about the recent conversations that you've just had is, is something that we're seeing in road haulage as well, and that is drivers themselves looking at their own work-life balance. They don't want to be working 50 hours, 60 hours a week. Uh, they want to have a home life like everyone else. And I think one of the effects of the pandemic is that an awful lot of people have looked at their lives and are thinking in terms of living their life a little bit a little bit differently to how they were. Um, and I think the increasing wage rates will give people a few more options. It is, um, it is an attractive job for many people, being a lorry driver, but it takes... Uh, four to six months to train to become a lorry driver. It's a skilled occupation. 
Yeah, and of course, yeah, then that obviously takes time. I suppose that's the thing is, so when we talk about needing more lorry drivers, if people are going from doing 50 hours a week to 25 hours a week, you literally need twice as many drivers to do the same amount of of driving. I suppose that's part of the problem. Um, I just want to ask you, Duncan, because this morning the Lib Dems have put out a press release calling on the government to send in the army to deliver food to supermarkets uh, to, to plug the gap. Is that something the Road Haulage Association would support? No. Uh, sending in the army would be uh, an exercise in, in spin and uh, would be fruitless. There are, there's a couple of thousand uh, qualified army drivers uh, I would assume that they're already doing things in the army, which, were, <laughs> which they are required to do. Uh, you can't just bring in the army. Logistics change, supply chains are complicated, uh, skilled uh, setups. You can't just bring in a, a couple of guys to handball a few boxes out of the back of a truck for, for a photo opportunity, which is the sort of thing we've seen in the past. Uh, where the armies had a big effect when we when we when COVID broke out and sort of around Christmas last year was when they were able to manage the border and help manage the border when we had a crisis when France shut their border. Uh, that's when the army was really useful. They they have the authority to direct people in this direction or that direction. But in terms of driving driving lorries, um, I think that they would probably be counterproductive because it'd be so much time messing around training them to do things that are already being done. Of course, the big political story of the day is Boris Johnson announcing his plans for a tax rise to pay for social care. What does it all mean? Will it work? One man who's been there and tried to do that is Alistair Burt, a former social care minister, who joins me now. Well, the first thing to say is it's really good to have a prime minister who's announced a plan because we've waited 23 years and he's the fifth prime minister that's promised. So I think we should be pleased that there is a plan. In terms of the plan itself, though, um, I do have concerns that, first of all, he announced that there were going to be changes, but these were not coming into place until 2023. Now, one of our challenges is that we have significant problems in the social care sector absolutely now. So we cannot wait till 2023 until we get some support for the social care sector. Uh, Alistair Burt, you were social care uh, minister in one of those many governments that promised to do something and didn't. Um, are you giving Boris Johnson a round of applause today for, for grasping the nettle? I was and I worked with Martin and it's, it's nice to hear him uh, on the line again. Um, um, I am. I, I've not necessarily been the greatest fan of the Prime Minister for all sorts of reasons, but I do genuinely uh, agree that this was a nettle to be grasped. It has been incredibly um, easy to push it down the line politically, but it's left a great deal of harm in its wake. And also, uh, I've always been a Tory who recognised that if you're going to do more and there are more people to deal with, you have to pay more. And you have to put more money into the system. And an awful lot of people seem to believe that you can get more government but spend either exactly the same or keep cutting it. You can't do it. And social care has suffered hugely from this. I'm sure there are, there are difficult things about where the money is coming from. And that will be a complex issue to sort out. But it's got to come from somewhere. And it seems to me, although we've not had all the details... This is a fair start, and, and I do agree that it's right that he should have done this, and I welcome what he said. Yes, in, in terms of the details, he said that no one earning less than £9,500 uh, will pay anything more. A basic rate taxpayer will pay someone like an extra £180 a year, uh, while someone earning over £67,100 will pay 
uh, something like £715 a year more. Um, this idea of a made, of this sort of hypothecated tax, a, a legally ring-fenced health and social care levy, um, do you think that's a good idea, Alistair? Is this, maybe this is the only way to get it through uh, for the Conservatives to put up a tax like this uh, by saying it is specifically for the NHS and for social care. Uh, but is, is there a flaw, is there a problem with hypothecating taxes in this way, Alistair? Well, um, in a sense, only superficially. I mean, all <laughs> money goes into the all money goes into the pot at the end of the day. Uh, and if you have a hypothecated tax, it doesn't stop you uh, reducing the amount of overall revenue that goes to a particular service at some stage in the future uh, in order sort of to make up what's been put in through the hypothecated tax. So it's not a simple cure-all. However, in terms of public presentation and having the public understand that this money is going for a particular thing, I think it's quite important. But it it may indeed start to open the way because you can be sure as fate other people will be coming along behind and asking for hypothecated taxes <laughs> for all sorts of their favourite interests. I think. Yeah, he's let that. He's let that. Um, he's opened the Pandora's box on that one, possibly. Um, Martin, paint a picture of what it's like in the care social care system right now. And I should point out because we've had we have oh, whenever we discuss this, lots of people message in to point out social care is not just about elderly people. There are lots of uh, children, young adults who are in the, the care system too. What is the social care system facing right now and how bad will it get if these changes don't come in before 2023? Well, I think we should acknowledge the social care system has been on the front line of the pandemic. And I also want to acknowledge how brilliantly the social care workforce has supported people at this really difficult time, whether they're younger people with learning disabilities or older people, whether it's been about care homes or people being supported in their own home. You know, our staff have really stepped up to the plate at this time of crisis. I think one of our challenges now, though, is that a lot of those staff are very burnt out and we are seeing some significant challenges around how we both recruit and retain our workforce. And I know working with Alistair, who I have to say was an incredibly committed and very good minister, we all talked about the issue of workforce. And I think it's now become even more acute because of the pandemic. Uh, And so we've got to address some of those issues. And I hope the Prime Minister will look at the workforce issues as well as some of the challenges that we face around funding. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from? <laughs>